0: Is Christian singleness a burden to be endured or a God-ordained vocation? Might singleness here and now give the church a glimpse of God's heavenly promises? Hello and welcome to the God's Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and uh, we're here to talk about uh, a new book by Danielle Truick, her new IVP book The Meaning of Singleness, Retrieving an Eschatological Vision for the Contemporary Church. Danielle is Founding Director of the Single-Minded Ministry and an adjunct teacher at Moore Theological College in Sydney, Australia. Danielle also serves as both diocesan research officer and a member of the Archbishop's Doctrine Commission within the Anglican Doctrine Commission within the Anglican Diocese of Sydney. So there you go. She's very important. Hi, Daniel or <laughs> Danny. Hi, Hello. Hi. <laughs>
1: I don't think I'm very important, but I'm very thankful to have the opportunities to serve that I do. Thanks for having me on, Brent.
0: Oh, there we go. Now, this is this is an intriguing and fascinating read. I mean, it really is. Now, can we better start by defining our terms, please? What is singleness?
1: Yeah, that's what I had to do very early on in the book in lots of ways and then continue to do it throughout the book because um, the word single in our day and age does a lot of heavy lifting. It's only about five six hundred years old as a word, single itself, and so across those five six hundred years, the way we're using it now than the way they did in sort of early modern Europe is even quite different. Uh, and so, it, part of the book is actually exploring how do we load the term singleness. But when I use it to talk about present day Christian um, theology and practice, I'm talking about the simply the situation of being unmarried. Um, whether that's never married, whether it's divorced, whether it's widowed, so single, single again, all of the contexts and circumstances in which that is actually lived out and experienced is what is on view in the book. But in the book also I take us through sort of the historical development of the unmarried state in that sense. And, um, you know, the early church had very different conceptions. They were talking about virginity. They were talking about um, eunuchs, continence, chastity, so it very much is a bit of a historical dynamic field to engage with.
0: I should say just joining us is uh, my co-host, Ian Reed Rideau of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North. Ian, welcome. You joined us on the word continents, I think. It
2: was, <laughs> I, th- I think it was. I think it was virginity was probably the first. One I
1: think. <laughs> these these are, are regular regular words in my in my um vocabulary these days. It kind of freaks me out when I think too much about it.
0: Well, we'll uh, I'll bring you in in a minute, Rita. But um, we better just carry on we'll talk to Debbie for a bit longer. Uh, the history, the historical part of this was was intriguing. How prevalent was singleness in early modern Europe?
1: More so than we would expect, actually. Um, I would need to go back. You've read it more recently than I have. I'd need to go back and check my figures, but um, I think it was something close to, you know, a quarter of the the population of women in early modern Europe uh, were unmarried, and that's obviously across again a diverse spectrum of age and stage at that point. Um, But I think we have a we have a tendency to think that. You know, 99% of people through certainly Western history have been married and have been married young, and that's actually that's actually not the case. There's quite divergence in different historical eras on on all of those. One thing to say is the historical record has a lot more about single women than it does about single men. Um, it's harder to actually work out what that situation was for men. Um, the record does tend to feature more on women, strangely.
0: Yeah, how did singleness start to become a negative term in 18th century England, for example?
1: Yeah, so it wasn't even the word, it was the idea of singleness, it was the idea of being unmarried that then uh, took on different connotations. And so the word spinster, for example, you know, we tend to think a spinster is kind of an old, haggard, unmarried woman who's kind of stuck at home with her 50 million cats and hates the world. Actually, the word spinster, in correlation with being unmarried, came out through the Industrial Revolution um, and the beginnings of that as a lot of the women who were spinning textiles were unmarried women. They were they came to be called spinsters because that was largely the demographic of women producing this particular product. And it was actually a way for them to have some sort of economic social independence um, was, was this, this work they engaged with. But over time, the word spinster began to take on negative connotations. You know, the word old maid began to sort of creep into the vocabulary. And I, in the book I talk about a particular term that developed uh, in uh, sort of Regency Victorian England for the, the old woman who never married, that kind of embittered woman who was became known as the ape leader. I went, where does this come from? And there was this poem or proverby kind of thing that talked about, um, you could, it's quoted in the book, talks about ape leaders being these old women, because apes at that time, the animal apes, were considered to be a very unproductive species. They weren't very fruitful in terms of offspring, apparently. And so the old unmarried woman who hadn't had offspring became compared to the ape leader. While young maidens were compared to dogs who were very fruitfully proc- procreative, apparently, like just stuff that you go, wow! If you Google it, there's some fascinating illustrations about that that little poem. So,
0: the past is a very strange place, indeed. Now, how has yeah. singleness? But let's come on to the singleness in the church, because this is a large part of your book, isn't it? How has singleness mm-hmm. been perceived in the church since the time, say, of the Reformation?
1: Yeah, the time of the Reformation was pretty key and maybe we might go into sort of details about why that was the case later, but certainly since the Reformation when marriage, uh, you know, the Reformation was fundamental in changing the, and I think in, in an important and right way, rehabilitating marriage as a good gift from God, as not something inferior to celibacy or singleness. But the pendulum which had been way up here with the Reformation started swinging and then it went boom straight up the other end. And um, we start to see singleness becoming suspect in the Christian church. Uh, The idea that you could actually live a self-controlled sexual life without marriage, without having sex, became something that was just a bit, you know, assumed to be untrue and a fallacy. Um, You need some sort of special gift from the Holy Spirit to do that. And then that combined with a lot of the sociological developments like the Industrial Revolution, Um, like the Romantic era through to the 20th century. Um, Then we get sort of the 1950s golden era, which lasted very briefly but had this very significant impact on how we thought about marriage and family. And the Christian church was not just informed by that but part of that. It was a very reciprocal kind of relationship. And um, that really leads us to, to sort of the back half of the 20th century where the sexual revolution And all of the different cultural developments that happened around that time meant that the Christian church started reacting in a, a, I don't want to say defensive way, because actually the church had very important contribution to make, but that contribution meant that the church really focused on marriage and family as kind of this bastion that we needed to uphold. And singleness increasingly became less favourable, shall we say, in light of uh, a focus on marriage and family, and um, sort of, you know, that's where we are today with some developments on that, I think.
0: Yes, Rita, I'm going to bring you in briefly here. Uh, is the church obsessed with with marriage? Well, can I ask oh, you, okay. Danny and, and Ian, is the church obsessed by marriage and family?
2: Oh, I, think, I think so, because I, I think, and I wonder if it's somewhat um, kind of out of the sexual revolution, is there a, a reaction to the sexual revolution saying you can't be a whole human being without having kind of sexual relationships. And so the church's reaction to that has been, well, you must be married, rather than saying chaste singleness is actually a viable, profitable option to being a human being. And it's okay for that for that. And we should we should help people pursue that.
1: Yeah. I, I would absolutely agree with that, Ian. And I think we do see the 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 seeds of that in the Reformation where you know, our day and age, sex is about being your most authentic self, your your sexual longings, your sexual instincts are who you are. And so not being able to, well, not choosing not to act on those, choosing not to express those. The world around us sees, well, that's a denial of your humanity. That's a, not just of your humanity, but you as an individual human being. The Reformation, you know, people like Martin Luther wrote about how sex was as biological necessity as eating, drinking and going to the toilet. So for from a theological perspective, sex was like, well, you can't, you can't get by without it unless you've got some special gifting. Uh, so you need to get yourself married so that you can actually have it legitimately rather than illegitimately. And so those theological foundations have sort of been co-opted by the Christian church as we live in a world which says you must be free to have sex and the world says, well, We think you have to be able to have it because otherwise you're going to become a sexual sinner without end. Marriage is the only place you can have it. So get married so that you can have sex and other reasons to get married. The world says, no, 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 you don't need marriage for sex. Just live out your sexual desires. And we just have these two things that just bash against each other and singleness kind of becomes the invisible victim in all of that because there's on both sides there's no legitimate place for chaste, sexually pure singleness.
0: Yes, and also friendship you write I think about friendship being diminished by the contemporary mm. Christian approach to sexuality, don't you? Do you want to expand on that?
1: Yeah, I think um well, I think the world around us because sex is is kind of seen as the central core. Any any relationship now is has the potential to be sexual or there's some sort of sexual underlying reality running through it in the world around us and um I think, again, the church is trying to respond to that. But the response from the church, and I am speaking in generalities here, but the response from the Western Evangelical Church has not been to actually grab hold of friendship and look at that theologically as a unique relationship in and of itself. What does Jesus mean that he calls his disciples his friends? Instead, we've kind of reacted by absorbing friendship into marriage. So now it is very normal for Christians to speak about being married to their very best friend. Friendship, the ideal of friendship has kind of become subsumed in and identified with this particular relationship. And please don't get me wrong, I think friendship in marriage is very important, but it is not the essence of marriage. It is not the vital component of marriage. And in in taking it to that point, we've actually diminished the significance of friendship more broadly. And I think that's not just singles who are missing out there. I'm deeply concerned for my married brothers and sisters, uh, because we have such an expectation of that one person that they are going to be our relational be all and end all in every way, the kind of ideal person to meet all of our relational needs. And that's just not it's not fair, and it's not sustainable, and it sets people up for hurt and devastation. I think.
0: Yes, uh, let's come on and look at the early church because we get a very different picture. And we were talking about this before the interview started. And I said I just rewatched Kenneth Clark's Civilization, and and found the his whole take on the Middle Ages fascinating, and the view of singleness. That was being presented and and held as an ideal by the Middle Ages was like radically different from the modern church. How did the early church though, view singleness and indeed virginity?
1: Yes, again, we're talking five six hundred years, so there's there wasn't one particular way of viewing it. There was uh, there was troughs and and peaks and valleys and different um, different people uh, coming in at different angles and all of that. Uh, But as we see the first couple of centuries after Jesus, as we see the church really beginning to develop, to grow, to ground its theology, to formulate what it is it believes, their language was very much virginity. Uh, And I think this is part of the translation we need to do. We think of singleness, and when we talk about that, we have all sorts of possibilities that come into mind. For me, my singleness involves quite a lot of personal agency, even as, you know, I'm circumstantially single. I haven't chosen to be single, but this is where God has put me. But I've also exercised agency in that as well. in In the early church and in places around the world today, there is very little. There was very little agency for people. You 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 had an arranged marital partner that your family arranged for you because this is the way that society worked. And so your choice was really to marry this person or to not marry. Uh, it wasn't a case of kind of just wait and see what how, how life turns out. So we have to understand as we talk about virginity or being unmarried in the early church, there's very different historical factors at play. and We need to do some translation. We can't just pick out the early church and dump it into the 21st century. It just doesn't quite work like that. But for virginity in the early church, it came to be very highly prized. And that was, there was certainly, well, there were all sorts of factors to do with that. Some of those factors had to do with, uh, ascetic Traditions the idea that actually by denying yourself you actually entered some sort of higher spiritual state or relationship with God there was that going on there was all sorts of heresy going on that played into this as well but what shocked me what I had no idea about until I started going and looking was just how deeply eschatologically formed the early church's perception on the unmarried life was that they actually prized the unmarried sexually, their language, continent life, uh, because of the way it related to the new creation, the resurrection life that they were looking forward to. Uh, I had no idea, and that wasn't just one or two pe- one or two early church fathers. That was consistent across the board, though often in quite unique ways. Uh, and there was lots of discussion between themselves about what those ways were.
0: Yes, we're going to come on and look at that. But I wonder to what extent the motif of virginity was an earthly expression of the eternal angelic life.
1: Uh, yeah, very much so. So in today's day and age, we tend to go straight to 1 Corinthians 7 as our purple passage on singleness. Uh, the ancients... Went there a little bit, but they went far more frequently to Matthew chapter twenty-two, where Jesus, in talking to the Sadducees, uh, speaks to them that and says very clearly that in the new creation, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but they will be like the angels in heaven. And the tradition is almost unanimous that what is exactly going on there is that Jesus is saying. In the resurrection age, we will not be husbands and wives. None of us, marriages won't continue into the new creation. No new marriages will be formed in the new creation. Instead, we will be like the angels. That is, we will be celibate. We will be unmarried. And lots of different early church fathers, they were all unanimous in in that interpretation, but there was lots of distinction about, well, are we going to become angels or are we just like the angels? Are we uh, unmarried people now like angels on earth? Like there was all sorts of discussion, but the grounding was there that it's actually this this eternal future of what we're going to be like in relationship with each other as kind of recreated virgins in that sense uh, that informed their theology about virginity in the, the present life.
0: Yeah. How did the Reformers understand that passage in Matthew?
1: They didn't. They actually agreed. Uh, they There wasn't sort of... Significant exegetical, dis, you know, difference of opinion there. Uh, it wasn't that Martin Luther or John Calvin or any of the other reformers said, "Oh no, this is wrong. Marriages in this life will carry over." They they actually unanimously talked about marriage not being a reality in the new creation. They saw the aim, the angelic life as being the unmarried celibate life. Uh, they didn't say that we will literally become angels, and I think that's right. I don't think Jesus is saying we'll become angels. He says. In this aspect of our life, we will be like the angels. But even as they had the same basic understanding of that passage as the early and the medieval church, its significance was very much diminished in Reformation thought. It, this is what the passage says. Moving on now, let's talk about marriage and sex. Um, that's you know that's a caricature, but not and not an untrue one. I think.
2: Rito,
0: do you want to have a question? Have you got questions for Danny?
2: Well. Um, just just thinking through the, the modern church and you know kind of how's the how's the pendulum swung you know where where are our idols in, in particularly around this uh, particularly yeah. around marriage
1: well I think we we have we have followed in the the footsteps of the Reformation in terms of that that theological position has now been sort of grounded for about six hundred years and has been the norm um, that we we highly prize marriage in this life without thinking too much about the next in this respect and I should say marriage in this life has a very significant link with the next life, which is it actually points us very importantly to the to the coming marriage between Christ and the church. And so that is vitally important. But we have tended to focus on that aspect of marriage's eschatological significance without even giving any real thought to, well, what would the unmarried life's eschatological significance be? And we, we can talk a little bit more about that if you like. But that has meant that along with all those sort of historical developments that have happened, if you go and look at, um, I don't know if you've read Carl Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he traces through sort of the the philosophical developments of expressive individualism. We've kind of taken those things and linked them all together, and I don't think that we actually recognise as contemporary Christians just how, how deeply discipled by the world we have been on all of these things. And that's partly what I'm hoping that my book will do. It it doesn't give all the answers by any stretch of the imagination, but I want it to provoke conversation like you've just said it. Well, what are our idols? What are our presuppositions? What are our assumptions? And how might those need to be challenged as we look anew at what a theology of singleness may actually be?
0: Can I come on to talk about the Apostle Paul? And uh, as far as we know, he was single. Mm Mm-hmm. What does he have to say about singleness in 1 Corinthians 7, and how has that passage often been ignored by the contemporary church, or downplayed, perhaps a better a better term to use?
1: Yeah, he has a lot to say about being unmarried in his language. I mean, as I said, we're not going to find the word single in Scripture, but he talks about being unmarried. He talks about those who were betrothed. To, that meant they had some sort of arrangement, um, more than an engagement, uh, but they weren't married. Uh, he talks about the widows. So uh, in that passage, in that chapter, there is a lot of gold in there. You know, he says very clearly, I wish all were as I am, that is unmarried. He he wishes everybody could be. That's how highly he prizes it, even as he says, uh, but each has his own gift from God, one of this kind, one of another. Now I should say on the record, and we can talk about this if you'd like to I don't understand that gift to be some special spiritual booster shot of empowerment to self-control. I think that actually is inconsistent with so much of our broader theological understanding of the way the spirit works and how he cultivates self-control in us. Um, I think Paul is just speaking there about some have been given the situation, the assignment of being single. Some have been given the situation, the assignment of being married by God. Um, He talks about being inhabiting the situation that God has assigned us to later in the passage. But Later on in 1 Corinthians 7, he he does talk very, um, I think, beautifully about the the privilege of being unmarried uh, in terms of the way it provides opportunity to be undivided in your devotion to God. Now, again, we could spend a lot of time unpacking what that means, but, again, when you look at that, his framing is eschatological. He's saying this because, actually, The resurrection has changed things. We are living in this awkward now but not yet time. When we're citizens of the new creation, it's been inaugurated, but it hasn't been consummated. We're living in light of that time now. And he says that changes things up. Uh, And so 1 Corinthians 7 is very much, I think, got an eschatological framing to it in that sense. But in answer to your second part of that question, I I think we, we very often treat 1 Corinthians 7 as kind of this siloed chapter in Scripture where it says stuff about singleness and we, can't, we, we tend to divorce it from all of our broader theological thinking about a whole range of things to do with marriage, to do with sexual morality, to do with self-control, to do with the work of the Spirit, to do with even how we understand marriage as being part of our kingdom-orientated work as Christians. It, I, I don't understand how we do this, but we, we kind of I think we walk into 1 Corinthians 7 and we close the door behind us. We spend time just in this text and then we walk out of it and we close the door on it again and go back to the rest of Scripture is how I'm coming to understand it.
0: Yes. So um, we're just about out of time. Um, I've got so many other questions. I was going to ask you about Alfric. I knew nothing oh, yes. about Alfred, <laughs> but I... Do you want to? Can we have a couple of minutes on Alfric? Why not? <laughs> sure. uh, what was Alfric's view of virginal marriage? And this is going back to the Middle Ages, isn't it? What was yeah. Alfric's view of virginal marriage, and why is it important? Do you think?
1: I knew nothing about Alfric either. I, um, no. This is Al- Alfric of Ennisham. There's a few Alfrics around in the Middle Ages, but um. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong as well, but uh, yeah, I knew nothing about him. I stumbled across him. He was a um, he was a very significant theologian, but his main claim to fame was he wrote this uh, account of the saints' lives. And um, in those accounts of all sorts of different saints, he had uh, four who were what he called married virgins. So they were pe- men and women who wanted to had wanted to remain unmarried, who'd wanted to commit to Jesus as an unmarried person, but who were sort of for all reasons to do with their family, compelled towards marriage. And they uh, basically made pacts with each other, the husband and wife, that, okay, sure, we'll get married, but we will live as virginal husbands and wives. And so this was a bit of a medieval practice. I don't think it was particularly common, but this chaste marriage. Uh, anyway, it was just fascinating to kind of go, oh, this is interesting. And could they, these were virgins, but they were married uh, how? Why there be some things to explore here, and it's you know you kind of have to read the book to to get into the, into all the details of that. But uh, I actually think that there are some th- those men, and I mean it's they are unlikely to have been historical people, at least in the detail that Alfred, you know. But as narratives, there is some significance to the stories there about the way they actually spoke about the benefits and joys and eschatological privileges of virginity, even in marriage, that I think has some implications that we could tease out for being unmarried today.
0: Uh, final question. I think it's just about the final question. How can singleness make sense of marriage and vice versa? And indeed, Ooh. how do we, uh, speaking to single people, how, how, what do we say to single people within our church communities?
1: Uh, well, there's lots of things that we could and should be saying to singles in the within the communities. And I'm hoping my book might sort of start provoking some of those conversations a bit more faithfully. Uh, but I I, one of the first in, in one of the earlier chapters, when I really start looking at singleness in the church, I identify the fact that we define what it is to be single by what you're not. I, I'm not a husband. I'm not a wife. That is what it is to be single. And I I I located this in the book as this is a a deficit identity. This is actually, there's nothing intrinsically good about my singleness. It's just compared to the good that it could be if I was married. And this is, I set that up as a bit of what do we do with this because this is problematic. Uh, And here's a spoiler alert. In the final pages of the book, I actually say, actually, as we've explored this, that is the way it should be. Singleness's meaning is that it isn't marriage. And marriage's meaning is that it isn't singleness, and I posit that singleness and marriage are like two paintings or tapestries I, I use in in a on a wall in a gallery, and they're meant to God designed them to be a complementing pair. They actually need to be next to each other so that we can see the beauty and the detail of one. We need to be able to have the other one next to it. When when we put the other one, you know, we shroud the other one, then some of the luster, the detail, the texture of marriage diminishes because we haven't got the contrasting pair of singleness next to it. And I actually think to make sense of marriage, we need to have a theology of singleness. And to make sense of singleness, we need to have a theology of marriage because both of them complement each other in God's story for us in different ways. And it's not a case of speaking highly about singleness means you have to diminish marriage or speaking highly about marriage means you have to diminish singleness. This is not a zero-sum game. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is able to say, marriage is good, singleness is good, let's get on with serving Jesus, regardless of where we're at. And somehow I long for us to be able to find where the Apostle Paul found that both of these things can be genuinely good at the same time without thinking we have to think less of one if we think highly of the other.
0: Yes, it's got to have massive pastoral implications for single mm. folk in in churches who I know struggle, and there's a lot of pressure on on people. Um, Ian, uh, final questions, thoughts?
2: One of the things that that particularly where where we live, there are lots of single people who would like to be married, but there just aren't mm. other other Christians on the yeah. same level as them. That you know, kind of how, how do I or how do we as a church encourage people to say, you know, kind of it's okay to 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 look elsewhere, I don't mean outside of the church. I mean in other cities or even yeah. online. Um, it's okay to pursue wanting to be married if you are single, but and at the same time, still uphold their singleness is a good thing. How, how do I? Yeah. How do you balance those things?
1: Yeah, that's um, that's a very important question that I think we're all wrestling with because. It It is very difficult to do that. And, you know, I had anticipated that I would be married. It hasn't been God's story for me so far. It may be in the future. I don't know. But that's something that I've lived as well. And I think the first thing to say is actually marriage is a good gift from God. It is a good thing. And so to pursue a good thing is something that we want to rejoice in and celebrate and encourage and support. And so in no sense do I want to encourage particularly pastors to say to singles, just sit there, be quiet, and be happy with your singleness and close that door. That's, that's not, I think, a helpful way for most singles. The complexity is there will all, you know, we live in a time where there are significantly more single Christian women than there are single Christian men, um, and so there are going to be more single women in particular who are going to be struggling with this, which is not to say that there aren't single men who are struggling with it too. Uh, I think what we need to encourage each other to do is to recognise that marriage is a good gift from God, to recognize that there is some legitimate grief that comes without having been good, given that good gift at any stage in our life, but not allow ourselves to be controlled by that grief, not allow that grief to overwhelm us and for that grief to shape our vision of singleness because actually what I think we need to do as we sit in that grief is actually look at, well, well hang on, how does God think about my singleness? How does God feel about it? How, what is God purposed for it? How to actually aligning my vision of my singleness with God's vision of it? How does that help me to put that grief into some perspective, Um, to seek to be content, even as I may hope for marriage to come in the future? And that, I mean, that is when you think about it, that is a snapshot of life in this now but not yet, the living with the reality of this world and the complexities and the griefs and the sadnesses of it at times, as well as the blessings in it while we have this confident hope of something much more glorious to come. So singles actually have a unique perspective to offer in this sense as well, I think, and we need to encourage singles to inhabit that time wisely and faithfully.
0: Yes, very pastoral. Wonderful. I, lo- I love that. Thank you to you both. Danielle Awick, <laughs> founding director Lovely. of the Single-Minded Ministry and an adjunct teacher at Moore Theological College in Sydney, Australia. The book from IVP America is called The Meaning of Singleness, Retrieving an Eschatological Vision for the Contemporary Church. It's a fascinating and intriguing read. Thank you, uh, Danielle. Thank you to my co-host, Rido, uh, the Reverend Ian Reed of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Thank you both so much.
1: Thanks for having me, Brent. And Pleasure. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God's Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.